Welcome to Well Wisdom, where we visit with guests and explore topics that help you overcome life's inevitable adversities, both big and small, to find meaning, purpose, joy, happiness, connection, confidence, and strength. This is the essence of resiliency, the ordinary magic that we are all capable of. Welcome, well listeners. I'm thrilled to be here today with Dr. Stephen Hickman to discuss self-compassion. And I'd just like to begin by sharing some of his background with you. We're so fortunate to have an expert in this arena with us here today. So Dr. Stephen Hickman is the executive director of the Nonprofit Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. He's a clinical psychologist and a retired associate clinical professor in the University of California at San Diego School of Medicine. And as well, there he was also is the founding director of the UC San Diego Center for Mindfulness. Steve co-developed the evidence-based mindful self-compassion teacher training program, and he's participated in the training of over 1,800 mindfulness self-compassion teachers throughout the world. He's also um, taught the eight-week and intensive mindfulness self-compassion program many times throughout the globe. He's the author of Self-Compassion for Dummies. And you know that that series of books, it just puts everything into a very simplistic, easy way for us to understand even complex topics. So it's an excellent book. I really encourage you to pick that up if you're interested in this topic. He's also um, certified a certified teacher of mindfulness-based stress reduction, and he trains teachers in that program as well. He's married and has three young adult children, which allows him ample time to practice what he teaches. Thank you so much for being here today, Steve. My pleasure, happy to be here. Thank you. Well, my first question is, what drew you to self-compassion? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually sort of started my career in sort of contemplative practice in the sort of in the mindfulness realm, which is, not that different from self-compassion, but I used to teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, as you mentioned in my bio. Um, uh, Mainly, uh, I was at UC San Diego and working with a lot of medical patients, people with chronic pain and cancer and other sorts of um, illnesses and difficulties, and found mindfulness to be really powerful for them in coming to terms with the the reality of their situation and finding better ways to cope with it. and happened upon the Mindful Self-Compassion program in its early days. It was developed by uh, doctors Chris Germer and Kristen Neff. Uh, Chris is a, a world-renowned uh, author and speaker on the topic of contemplative practice in psychotherapy in general, mindfulness and self-compassion. Compassion. And Kristen Neff is uh, uh, the, the world expert on the study of self-compassion and research. So sort of a researcher and a clinician got together and created this program. And really, I mean, when you get to the heart of it, the the reason I became so intrigued by this practice and kind of caught up in this world was to see people who had had mindfulness training, taken the MBSR course, and then they came and they took mindful self-compassion in my class or others. Uh, Something different happened for people in those self-compassion courses than happened in a mindfulness course. And not to take anything away from what they learned in mindfulness, the capacity to sort of 
observe the activity of the mind, not get caught up in reactivity and, uh, uh, and to be able to be more responsive and access one's inner resources was super valuable. And a lot of folks would discover that when they slowed down and paid attention and actually noticed the activity of their mind, one of the things they would notice is how terribly they speak to themselves. Uh, they have inner critics, they have shame. <clears throat> they struggled with, uh, you know, sort of leftover inner dialogue that was really hurtful and painful. And this practice of self-compassion was not about avoiding any of that, but actually being kind to oneself because one was experiencing it. And this gave people who were already practicing mindfulness a, a new way of contending with the difficulties they were facing by being uh, kind to themselves in the same way that they might be to a dear friend who was struggling or suffering in some way. So not only could they be present, but they could be warm and kind and patient with themselves. And that's a huge difference for a lot of people because the absence of self-compassion can lead to so many difficulties and so many different forms of suffering. Yeah, and I think so many of us um, can relate to, to negative self-talk or being really uh, self-critical, hard on ourselves. So that's not unusual. And we're often kinder to other people than we are to ourselves. Do you find that in your practice? Uh, absolutely. That's job security for me as a self-compassion teacher, sadly. Um, but yeah, there is there is actual evidence. Kristen Neff has done some research on the prevalence of you know, how people treat themselves versus how they treat a good friend. And and yes, the preponderance of evidence points to people in the in the mid 85% or so range are, are kinder to their friends than they are to themselves. Small percentage are kind of the same for both and the very tiny percent are actually kinder to themselves than to others. Those people never come to our self-compassion classes. Um, but that's just a, it, it's a phenomenon that happens. And there's actually kind of an, an interesting thing to explore wondering why is that? Why would we be so hard on ourselves when we have the capacity to be so kind and compassionate to other people? And there's a lot of explanation or, you know, a lot of theorizing around that. Um, but I often kind of go to thinking about, um, how we get raised, of course, that that's a factor. Um, and I, I often kind of even go back to like, why do we have an inner critic? You know, many, many of us do have an inner critic that just is so incredibly hard on us. Some it's more mild and more and others, it's more, you know, difficult. Um, but when we look a little bit closer at this inner critic, it comes down to like, what happens when we're if you think about very poor parenting, like at the times in your life, not so much uh, any particular person who's a bad parent, but all of us when we're stressed out, when we're overwhelmed, when we have too much, you know, when those of us who've been parents and have had tons of things to contend with all at once, too many things going on, financial difficulties, sick kids, all this sort of stuff, we're not at our best. And we often need to just get things done. And so we, we can, when we're feeling overwhelmed, out of a wish to keep our kids safe and healthy, do things we're not particularly pleased with, you know, to like yell at the kid to tell them to be quiet, which is kind of a counterproductive thing. Or having super high standards, you know, to say to a kid who comes home and says, look, I got 95% on my math exam. And to say, 
well, that's great, but how come you didn't get 100? We're not trying to be hurtful. We actually want the kid to succeed. We want them to be trying as hard as they can to achieve everything they possibly can. But unfortunately, it plants a seed of like, oh, 95% isn't good enough. It really needs to be 100%. And a kind of perfectionism sets in. So we end up, uh, but the, the intention was good. So, so when you kind of think of it that way, then you start to look at, well, what is my inner critic when it tells me I'm not smart enough to do this or, or I'm too lazy to accomplish that? What is it trying to do? Well, it's not trying to abuse us. It's actually trying to keep us safe in a very ineffective, painful way. It's like saying, well, don't try because if you try, you might fail and I don't want you to feel the pain of failure. Or, you know, just don't start because I don't want you to come up short. So it's, it's sort of saying, oh, you know, I want to protect you from pain, but it's actually causing you more harm than good. So once you start to see this inner critic as something that's ineffectively trying to protect you, then you can acknowledge it and say, oh, I see what you're doing there. You know, thanks. But, you know, no, this is really important to me. So it was a long answer to your question. But um, people often wonder, like, why in the what purpose in the world would an inner critical voice like that serve? Why do we even have such a thing? But I think that's a lot of it. Well, and that's interesting. And this is probably a deep topic for, you know, another conversation. But I find it fascinating that so often many of the things that we do to keep ourselves safe or to self-preserve are really destructive. And yeah. but they they seem like a good strategy when we embark on them. And then um, as things unfold and we kind of get deep into it and and we develop these habits that aren't really beneficial to ourselves, oftentimes disconnecting us, you know, from others who could be supportive to us. Um, so I, that resonates with me so much, Steve. But what I'd like you to do is explain to our listeners kind of the three aspects of self-compassion um, and then also the benefits, because there's a lot of benefits that are touted in the studies for those of us who can shift away from that inner critic and begin to practice self-compassion. Yeah, and just briefly to the point you just made, which is important, I think, is that a lot of these efforts that we make that you talked about are efforts to control how we feel, control an emotion, to make an emotion go away, to push it away, to pull it in, to do something with it. And that's actually the nature of the problem is that we, we're trying to control emotions. And, and you know from experience, it doesn't work. Someone tells you, don't worry. It, that's, that's advice that's never worked in the history of mankind, even if you try, because as soon as you try, you start to worry again. Mm -hmm. So sometimes trying to control our emotions is actually the source of our problems because we can't, you know, it's like trying to stifle a chuckle in a, you know, at a funeral. The more you try, the harder it is and the more you want to laugh. So, so trying to control it often is, is difficulty and coming into alignment with knowing that this is a part of being human allowing these feelings to come and go actually is part of the way through and the part of the way of practicing self-compassion. We don't, we often say we teach, we practice self-compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. Mm -hmm. So that's an important point. And I can circle back to that, but just kind of keeping that in mind, we're not trying to change the moment. We're not trying to cheer ourselves up or make ourselves not anxious. We're actually trying to be kind to ourselves because we're anxious or because we're sad. And so self-compassion actually has these three components that Kristen Neff has identified in her research as well, which is first mindfulness is the first foundation, uh, the first component, which is 
just being aware of what's happening when it's actually happening, which sounds super easy. It is super simple. It's not so easy to practice, to be fully in the moment, to be present to whatever's arising. But we can't contend with suffering unless we actually know that we are suffering. So this is the, the foundation is awareness, basically. So mindfulness. We usually know the opposite of it, sort of mindlessness or rumination, those kinds of things. So the second piece of, of self-compassion is not just noticing that we're struggling or having a hard time, but recognizing that it's not unique to us. We are not the only ones who suffer. Actually, every human being on the planet suffers. So there is this common humanity that when we fail at a test or we you know, lose a relationship or we do something, we make a mistake, it's because we're human. There's nothing, we're not fatally flawed as an individual because we didn't you know, succeed. This is a part of being human. Imperfection is the human condition. So, so recognizing in those moments when we feel uniquely bad or flawed or alone, we are actually having uh, an experience that millions and billions of other people have every day. So this is a part of being human. So this is the common humanity. So we had mindfulness, common humanity. And then the last part is, so once you've noticed and you recognize this is a part of being human, can you give yourself what you need? May I be kind to myself? And that's the, the third component of self-compassion, self-kindness, actually in a moment of struggle and suffering, actually giving ourselves what we need in that moment. And that might be just a pause. It might be a warm gesture, like placing a hand over your heart. It might be some kind words. It might be a cup of tea. It might be a walk, whatever it is, giving ourselves what we need, not to make ourselves feel better, not to make ourselves relax, but because it's hard, just the way we would for a dear friend. We see a dear friend who's sad because they've, you know, they've suffered a loss. We're basically there. We just want to be there with them, not because we want to take away their grief, but we want them to feel comforted in their grief. And so it's just applying that for ourselves as well. Yeah, that's great. And I, I appreciate you kind of pointing out the the whole, you know, we don't want to deny that we're having a bad time. We need to be aware of it. And that's the first right. step. And that's um, one of the things that I think is so powerful about mindfulness is that it allows us to have a, a pretty balanced perspective where we realize that yes, we are suffering, but at the same time, we realize that we're human. Our suffering, we don't blow it out of proportion or deny it. We kind of can take that middle road where we see it for what it is and we give ourselves what we need in that moment. And that sounds so simple, Steve, but it's <laughs> not, is it? <laughs> and so I want you to speak, what makes it tricky for us, especially if we have had a really strong inner critic to start to transition to being more self-compassionate. Yeah, and I think it, you're right. It's, it's deceptively simple on the surface, but it involves an incredible amount of courage, to be honest. So being willing to stay present to uh, feeling is not our go-to means for most of us to, to get through life, right? We, you know, we have a bad day at work and the first thing we want to do is have a glass of wine or you know we get anxious and we want to try not to think about it or you know there's all a zillion bad coping skills and some of them good coping skills to avoid a difficult feeling because who wants to feel a you know a painful feeling um, but 
but it's a, actually, like I said, it's a part of being human that we we are who we are because of all of our emotional capacities, all of our tendencies to be happy and sad and joyful and sorrowful and all of the rest. So, but our, you know, our go-to means is to avoid, you know, we're like a, you know, an amoeba that's, you know, that moves away from the st threatening stimulus, whatever it is, that's our natural tendency, but it isn't actually the healthy one because we actually, First of all, we find that when we try to resist feelings, you know, if you feel sad, like I said, um, actually with this, the cute saying is what you resist persists, mm -hmm. right? So the more you try not to be anxious, the more anxious you get, the more you, you know, I say, don't think about a pink elephant and you immediately think about pink elephants. And the harder you try, the more you think about it. So that's what gets us caught is trying to resist having a difficult feeling. And we try to do all of these crazy things to get away from feelings and we can't, no matter how far hard we run, our shadow is still right there with us. So, and then the, uh, the other part is though, when we name it, we can tame it, just to use another cute expression that if we can have the capacity, the presence of mind, the equanimity, the inner safety to turn towards difficulty when it's here, and to say, oh, yeah, sadness is here, grief is here, you know, anxiety is present. We do a huge thing, and that little move, that pivot from moving away to moving towards, not, not even moving towards like getting absorbed in it, but just being willing to look and to see the reality of the situation. Oh, that's what's here. Then we can see it in this kind of balanced way that allows us to do something with it rather than react to it. So we can respond rather than to react. But again, sounds easy, not so easy to actually pull off, you know. Okay. Um, so remembering it takes courage. And, you know, frankly, sometimes in those moments, it's, it can feel overwhelming because our mind will tell us it's overwhelming. It will, it will say, you know, I, it makes me think of the end of the Wizard of Oz. You know, the Wizard of Oz is like, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Um, it's like, it doesn't want to be found out. It, it does everything it can to make, make us convinced that whatever the thing is, is catastrophic. And there's, don't look at it. Um, you know, it's going to be terrible. So just look away. I'm going to distract you. But when we actually turn and look towards it, we see it for what it is. It doesn't mean it's not huge. It's not painful or difficult, but it's, it's in a manageable realm. And then we can learn how to, as one of my patients said, once had chronic pain and learned mindfulness was that he actually had fought with his pain and his depression for years. And what he learned through mindfulness practice was that he could dance with it. And so that's it like that. You can feel the difference in that, right? Like that turning towards that willingness to engage with it, not to deny it, not to push it away, but not to swallow it whole, but instead just to engage with it in a harmonious way, dancing with it that allows you to work with the reality of it. So you're not in denial, but in a way that actually suits you. Yeah. I think that makes so much sense. And I, and I do think as a society, we are masters at avoiding or resisting. Um, and I think all of our electronics offer us such easy ways. Like even if you're with a loved one out to dinner and maybe you know they say something that just doesn't feel good to you, you might, you might just subconsciously pick up your phone and start scrolling. You know, I mean, exactly. there's so many ways we just begin to avoid. 
And so I love how you say it really takes courage to begin down this journey. And one of the things I'd love for you to explain for us, um, even though when you get to a place of self-compassion um, and, and, and down the road in our conversation, I'd like you to kind of speak to a lot of the benefits because it was really impressive to me when I started doing the research to see how enriching self-compassion can be for our life. But first I wanna talk about backdraft. It's something you mentioned in your book. And when we first begin to courageously be with what we're feeling, um, this, uh, this occurrence of backdraft could happen. So I'll let you explain that, Steve. Yeah, yeah so on its surface, self-compassion can seem, and it actually can be comforting, soothing, nurturing, et cetera. So if you think, okay, so I'm gonna try to be kinder to myself when I struggle, I'm gonna put my hand on my heart, I'm gonna say something sweet to myself, I'm gonna be kind. Um, all sounds good so far. Some of us, when we do that, when we're not in the mode of doing that, when we haven't been in the habit of doing it, especially if we've had really rough life experiences prior to this, when we first start to be kind to ourselves, break the habit of self-criticism, sometimes what can come up is <clears throat> this, this phenomenon that we call backdraft. Uh, and it can, it can actually, when we practice self-compassion, at first can sometimes feel painful. It can sometimes be upsetting. It can be just the opposite of what you thought you were going to get because you were hoping for kind of comforting, soothing, relaxing kind of thing. And there's an explanation for it, which is that if you have had a history where the need for compassion wasn't fulfilled, if you, you know, you found yourself frequently, you know, when you were injured or sick, you're primary caregiver um, didn't give you the compassion you really wished for in that moment, or, or in the worst case, actually, you got the opposite of it, you know, you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry about, that kind of a response. Mm -hmm. The need for compassion, the desire for the natural human inclination towards compassion for the self um, was met with something other than kindness and warmth. And so you figure out a way as, you know, humans are incredibly resilient and even children will find ways to kind of just get by without compassion, seemingly close that part off. But it's like a little fire in the furnace, you know, that, that just kind of builds up over time. And pretty soon, if a person has had enough of these experiences, they've stored away a lot of suffering that never really got met with compassion and it's just been stored away. It doesn't go away. They just figured out how to get by without it. And then suddenly you come along and you say, no, this isn't working for me because I have a heart full of suffering. And it's almost like flinging open the door of that furnace where all of this suffering comes whooshing out when you've gone to give yourself a little kindness. So it's not unusual. It happens for a lot of people when they're new to the practice of self-compassion. Sometimes people even have a struggle with just even placing their hands in their hearts the way the way I'm right now with an open palm as a very simple, you know, physiological gesture that that captures the sense of self-compassion. Sometimes people can't literally bring that hand to the heart. It's the reason I'm making the big deal out of it is because it's actually a sign if you experience backdraft, it's not a sign that you're doing something wrong or there's something wrong with you. It's a sign that this is the thing that you need and dosage is really the issue, so to speak, that you've touched on something that doesn't feel good, not because you did something wrong, but because your body, your heart, your soul needs it so much that 
it's it's just too much all at once and you need to like close that door of that furnace just a little bit you know next time just open it a little bit and then know that you can close it again so it's a it's not a sign of a problem it's actually an indication that you're on the right track you just need to slow down you know sometimes we say give yourself permission to be a slow learner of self-compassion because sometimes it's it's rough you've developed a lifetime of coping with self-criticism and avoidance you're not going to just flip that around in five minutes of practice. You need to be kind to yourself in that in that process. I really appreciate you explaining that to our listeners, because I think that's so important uh, to know that you're on the right track if you're feeling that, but it's a dose issue. Just ease off, yeah, be comfortable exactly. being a slow learner, but don't give up. Stay courageous. And, and stay yeah, and, and also just to say that backdraft phenomenon happens comes out in a lot of different ways and it's good to just be a little bit curious and a little skeptical if your experience of self-compassion is initially not what you wanted it to be be willing to be open to the possibility that backdraft could be happening you know and, and your history may be much different than what i just described but it comes out in different ways sometimes if we're very intellectual we 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 take a course or we go to a workshop and we think, ah, oh, yeah, I did that, but God, that teacher was such an idiot, you know, or she didn't know what she was talking about or God, you know, the furniture in that place was so uncomfortable. They just weren't concerned about us you know, and participants or whatever. Like it, it could be in a mental kind of backdraft. It can be an emotional thing that just comes out of nowhere and you don't know what it is. It could be sadness or anger or whatever. It can come in a lot of forms, but if you basically didn't get what you bargained for, <laughs> it could be backdraft. And you could be willing, if you were willing to be patient and lower the dose, be be a little bit curious and skeptical and see, be a bit of a scientist for yourself and explore it just a little bit before you dismiss it completely. Because it, you know, the, the benefits, as you mentioned, are so, so great in so many different areas. Yeah, so let's talk about those. What are the benefits that people can expect if they stick with it, if they're courageous and they begin to practice self-compassion? Yeah, I might kind of come at this a little sort of what seems kind of backwards a little bit is, is to say something about what the hesitations are that many people have about practicing self-compassion and what the research actually says. So when we have a group of people in a mindful self-compassion course, which is the course that Chris Germer and Kristen Neff developed, um, we'll ask people, you know, what's this, you know, we've told you self-compassion is mindfulness, common humanity, self-kindness, just go do that and you'll be fine. You know, and, and somehow or other, that's not enough for most people, for the vast majority of people. So we say, well, what gets in the way? Like, why don't you practice self-compassion? What holds you back? So quite often people will say things like, oh, it just seems so soft and, and you know, stereotypically feminine, for example. And, you know, especially with men, but a lot of women too, like that, that doesn't, they don't want to get softer. In some cases, they want to be tougher or harder or stronger. Um, so what we actually know is that is that people who are more self-compassionate tend to be more resilient. They tend to actually be stronger because they can bend without breaking. And that's there's evidence for combat veterans and people who've gone through divorce. Sometimes those two things are not that different. Um, other kinds of hardships that people have actually shown who are more self-compassionate tend to be able to withstand better and come out stronger on the other side. Um, sometimes, sometimes another thing about it is people will think it's kind of self-centered or narcissistic. Um, 
so they don't want to do that because that just seems kind of like navel gazing or something but actually what we understand from the research is that people actually more, who are more self-compassionate are able to kind of be with their own feelings including in relationships better than people who are self-critical so that they actually can stay in it with their partner they are often seen as more engaged more uh, in tune with their partners people find them to be even less self-centered because they have this ease with their difficult emotions so they can kind of navigate the territory another one that often comes up there are two others that are most common one is that it sounds like it's self-indulgent you know like you say oh i'm going to take a self-compassion class and people roll their eyes and say what well, you know you're going to get the mani-pedi after that and then go for the massage and you know what about the you know uh, aromatherapy and all that it's you know people think of it as this kind of like just um just self-kindness just just being just indulging yourself um but it's actually not that it's much more complex than that and the the best example i think of for this is that you know if you your child comes down to breakfast in the morning and says mommy i'd like to have chocolate ice cream for breakfast it's not the compassionate thing to give them chocolate ice cream right it might make them very happy it'd be very indulgent but you know as a parent that's not the most compassionate thing giving them a healthy breakfast is the most compassionate thing even though that's not the thing that they wanted so indulgence is not the same as as compassion or self-compassion and um, what we actually know is that people will when they're more self-compassionate they'll actually take better care of themselves so we have a colleague in the, in new zealand who did a study of mindful self-compassion in people with diabetes and uh, one group was the control group they got treatment as usual and they measured uh, quality of life mood uh, a number of different measures and also um, uh, hba1c you know blood sugar levels essentially um, and then in the other group they had the mindful self-compassion course so the people in the mindful self-compassion course in the end were statistically um, sort of had better quality of life, less depression, less anxiety, all the kinds of good self-report measures, but their HbA1c levels were also significantly lower than the control group. So it doesn't mean that when you put your hand on your heart, your blood glucose drops. It does mean that when you are self-compassionate, you know what's good for you and you're more likely to do it, to take care of yourself, to get the exercise, to eat the way you want to be and the way you should, etc. So self-compassion is a strength in that sense. It helps people to change habits and to do what needs to be done, even if it's not the most indulgent thing. Uh, and then the last one is people will also fear that, oh, I'm going to lose my edge. This is I have a particular interest in teaching self-compassion to men because our classes often are very under, men are very underrepresented in many of our MSc classes. If we go over 10% in a class, I'm ecstatic and that's like an unusual thing. And part of it is because men will see self-compassion as the possibility of losing the edge, you know, and men, I mean, both genders, all genders, you know, are subject to these kinds of ideas that we need to beat ourselves up in order to achieve but we actually understand from Kristen's research and others that when that if people are more self-compassionate they actually tend to try harder and persist longer at tasks than people who are less self-compassionate mainly because 
when you're self-compassionate, you can tolerate the inevitable failures and losses that come along the way with being human. So if you think about if you're super self-critical and you beat yourself up as an athlete and then you lose a race, it's going to be horrendous. It's going to be painful to be you in that moment because your inner critic is going to rant and rave about how bad you are, how lazy you are, how you're never going to cut it. You're going to be less inclined the next time to even want to compete if it's going to be like that if you lose. On the other hand, if your inner critic is more like an inner coach, like the best coach you ever had, you'll fail sometimes, but it'll be like, I know you have it in you. Let's figure out a way to do this better. You know, let's, you know, let's take a look at this. Let's be realistic and set some goals and move ahead. So, so really those, that speaks to all of the benefits as well of sort of strength and resilience and all of that sort of thing. And just the last little bit about that, it's helpful to recognize, and I kind of have made this point in the way I've talked about this, Self-compassion has two components to it. So Kristen Neff has a book called Fierce Self-Compassion, where she talks about the difference between tender self-compassion and fierce self-compassion. Tender is what we normally think of. When I just say self-compassion, most people think of comforting, soothing, nurturing, that sort of side of self-compassion, that kind of stereotypically feminine side, a little bit more passive. But there's also an active side to this of the or the like if a yin and the yang side, this is the yang side, this is the fierce side that has to do with protecting yourself, standing up for yourself, saying no when you need to say no, that can be a very self-compassionate act. Um, providing for your needs, the fundamental question of self-compassion is what do I need? So providing is a very active thing. And then motivating ourselves to make change, kind of the way I've talked about with some of these other things. That's a very self-compassionate act to motivate yourself, to push yourself, to identify with your values and pursue them in a very active way is a very self-compassionate move, but not so soft and squishy as the, the more uh, yin side, so to speak, the tender side. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm so glad you brought that out because um, that's the nature of compassion is that we're moved to action, whether it's compassion for another or compassion for ourselves. So that's really powerful, Steve. So people don't just think this is a warm and fuzzy, soft, passive kind yeah. of kumbaya moment, so to speak. Exactly. So um, this has been such a wonderful discussion. As we begin to wrap things up, um, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Mm. Yeah, I think self-compassion, you have to be willing to be patient, to go slow, to not expect this to be a cure-all for, for everything, but to, to be willing to try, to practice, to do little things, to notice moments of struggle or suffering in your life, and to be willing to just watch your reaction, that's the mindfulness, to remind yourself of that this is the kind of thing that every human faces, and to find a way to be kind to yourself. So little acts of self-kindness or self-compassion can build upon themselves. And, and like, I don't want people to take my word for anything. All the stuff I've just said, I hope it points some people in the right directions. And then you got to try it. Whether it's taking the mindful self-compassion course, you know, reading a book, listening to a meditation online, whatever it takes, go slow and and let your make your own evidence for this because that's the only thing that's going to keep you going. But be willing to be curious and be kind to yourself and see what happens when you are kinder to yourself. And when you let go of trying to make yourself feel better, but just to meet yourself 
in the midst of struggle and suffering just because it's hard. Uh, last thing is you, you can treat yourself when you're struggling or suffering the way you might treat a child who is ill with the flu. You know, when you bring them a, a something to drink or a cool cloth or you say sweet things or you give them a hug, you don't have any conception of treating their flu virus. You are comforting them because they have the flu. And that and that's valuable. And the same is true when you're struggling or suffering. You don't have to cure the struggle in order to meet yourself with kindness and have it make a difference. So well said. Thank you so much, mm, Steve. And I'd you. like to leave you and our listeners with a simple wish as we close. And that is, may you be happy and may you be healthy and may you be your very own best friend through self-compassion. Mm. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Thanks for joining me. I hope you found today's well wisdom inspirational and empowering. Is there a golden nugget you can bring forward into your life and perhaps even share with a loved one, friend, or colleague? Here's to you and your amazing ability to be resilient, to create your very own ordinary magic. Until next time, well listeners, 